There are some seriously and insanely wealthy people in this world. Here's the top five as of today. Elon Musk at $219 billion. Jeff Bezos at $171 billion. Bernard Arnault and his family at $158 billion. Bill Gates at $129 billion. And Warren Buffett at $118 billion. Okay, to put this in perspective of how much money that is, if any one of these figures was to happen, if they just accidentally dropped a $100 bill, it would be an inconvenience for them to pick it back up because they make more than that per second. That is insane. Imagine a $100 bill lying on the ground being an inconvenience to you. But now imagine Christ knocking on the door of your heart being an inconvenience to you. In Revelation 3 verse 20, we read, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I want to commune with you and I'm here knocking. But imagine that you are just like, to, okay, to see a $100 bill as too inconvenient for you is to say, I am too wealthy for that. That makes sense. But to hear Christ, the infinite, eternal God, knocking at your door and to say, it's an inconvenience right now, is to say that I am so rich in spirit that Christ is an inconvenience. <laughs> This is why Christ told us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the humble, those who know that they aren't worth a lot in God's economy, they never find Christ's invitation in inconvenience. Now, we might think that would never happen to me if Christ was here, I would be here. No, we do this in so many little ways. And here tonight, the bride will do this to the king. She will find his request for her an inconvenience. Now, mind you, this is right after last week we saw the wedding ceremony and the consummation of the marriage and the beautiful portrait of this is the Holy of Holies described to us as such in the text. And now, one verse later, we're already in the it's an inconvenience stage. Brothers and sisters, please remember that our salvation is not a marriage. Scratch that. Our salvation is not a wedding. Our salvation is a marriage. It's not about a moment and a day, and yay, we did it. It's about an eternal, well, a lifelong then eternal hall with the king of the universe, the creator of all. So we need to get our minds in a place of not, we did it, we attained, we, we received Christ into our lives, and it's done. He will constantly be knocking because he wants to keep on deepening the intimacy with us. And that means we must continually be open to him coming to us. And you will see in this passage, the, the bride will go from finding the king as an inconvenience to wondering, oh no, where did he go? Searching for him, finding him. And then what we're going to see at the end is that their union is even deeper than it was on the wedding night. She grows through this experience. So before we feel utterly condemned by our 
treating God as an inconvenience at times, know that he always uses our waywardness. If we repent, he uses these things to bring us into a deeper appreciation of his grace and to walk further into the center of the garden. So, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 2. This is the king's withdrawal. Um, this We don't know how long after the wedding this is. Presumably some time has gone by, but here we go. 5, verse 2. The bride says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved knocking. You hear that? Revelation 3.20. He's standing at the door knocking. How do we respond to that? He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He heaps up his favorite phrases for her all in one place. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Now, the bride says, I had put to herself, she's narrating for us, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Now, in less modern times, housing arrangements were such that, um, well, have you ever gone camping by the beach? I don't know if you've ever literally sand camped, but I have. I've done youth events and things, and <laughs> um, the pain it takes to keep sand out of the tent and out of your sleeping bag is miserable. Like, you gotta wash the feet every time you come in. You gotta tag these, like, it's gotta be a sanctuary in that tent. And if you've gone through all this, and someone's outside saying, hey, I have a question for you, or come out to me. I mean, no, I did a lot of work to get myself in the sleeping bag. I'm sand free. There's no chafing thing tonight i'm not coming out that's a lot like what it is like in ancient times you have to clean your feet because you don't have nice carpets you clean yourself to keep the bed clean she's all ready for bed she's half asleep we saw in the in the first verse verse two she's finding his sudden appearance at her door an inconvenience so she says look i'm already in bed i'm cozy i'm not getting up come back later That hurts, because how many times do we say this to God? Later. It's not a good time. Verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. So now she changes her mind. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So presumably he leaves myrrh, which was often used in um, intercourse. Um, he leaves myrrh on the handle, and she comes, and she finds the, ha- the myrrh on the handle, and then she opens the door. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke, so I sought him, but found him not. I called him. But he gave no answer. It was too late. The king had withdrawn. Can God withdraw from us? Well, Cody just read to us the passage from Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. No, God does not literally abandon us. But the immediacy and the nearness of his beckoning to us can be withdrawn. He's still there, but suddenly there's silence because we've turned our hearts cold. And now she's going through this experience of where, where is he? So she's going to go searching for him. 
Um, and then in verse seven, we, we, we saw her in verse six calling for him. So she's now out. She's out in the city. We don't know how well she's clad. Did she hastily put on a, a, a nightgown or like, we don't know exactly what she looks like, but she's in haste. And in verse seven, we see that the watchman found me. And as they went about the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Um, they might have thought that she was a prostitute running out looking for business and like, oh, no, you don't. And they discipline her. Um, verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. Sometimes you don't know what you have until it's gone. And sometimes God withdraws our sense of him when we've been hard-hearted so that we feel the despair. And then we know, oh, you're not an inconvenience to me. This making her seek him is growing her in maturity. She's See, we contend to take Christ for granted. Oh, he's always here. The church is always there. Oh, I can pray whenever. The Bible's always on my desk. Like I can, I can open it whenever. Like we take this for granted, which means sometimes we never enter into communion with him. And sometimes that withdrawal makes us say, who am I without him? And this is what she realizes. So, in verse 8, we saw her uh, adjuring the daughters of Jerusalem. Basically, this is like, pray for me. Brothers and sisters, pray for me. Help me with my relationship with Christ. In verse 9, they say to her, What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved? That you thus adjure us. She answers. Now, you'll notice that she's going to move from the head down to the feet in this description. Very much like the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel. And Daniel interprets the image. But of course, that image going from the head to the chest, the legs, to the feet. uh, That's all the kingdoms that will fall to the kingdom of God. Here we have the king portrayed to us as the eternal king. It's almost like a uh, 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 an opposite of that image that Nebuchadnezzar sees. So she, in verse 10, says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Ruddy and 10,000 are allusions to King David. This is a Davidic king like Christ. Because remember, David was ruddy. That's what it says when Samuel's going to anoint him. He came in from the fields ruddy and fresh of youth. And then in 10,000, remember, after David slays Goliath, they sing, to, they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. And then Saul gets jealous. There seems to be an allusion there to this, uh, this, this, this Davidic royal line in this king. Then verse 11, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, his mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. That's cut. (laughs) His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, so now she's recalling who she misses. This is causing to call, to stir within her praise for the one that has withdrawn. And then, uh, 
And then the others in chapter 6, verse 1. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? And then she. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So now, through all this searching, the, 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 the daughters of Jerusalem ask her, who is this beloved you're searching for? She names him, and all of the sweetness of Christ, of the king, or for us, of Christ, starts coming back to her, and she's like, oh, I know where he is! I know where he is! He's always in the garden! That's where I can find him. So it comes back to her, and she knows where to go. Now, so we see this. Um, she's, she searches for him. She's punished. She entreats others for help. She recalls his worth. Then she remembers, ah, he's in the garden. This passage is strange, especially with the watchmen. Um, some people think that this might be a dream she's having. The only problem with thinking of it as a dream is it's unclear where the dream ends and reality begins. So it's probably best just to see that what Song of Songs is doing here is it's likening the bride and the king to God's relationship with his people. Quite literally, what we see here is Israel's exile and return. So Israel... Um, Remember, the wedding happened before this. The bride and the king are married in chapters 3 and 4. And remember how we looked at it was portrayed as Solomon was coming up out of the wilderness to bring the bride to Jerusalem, to the promised land. Then she's described as the promised land, as the Garden of Eden, as the Holy of Holies. Well, here we see Israel, whom God married at Mount Sinai, has rejected him has gone instead for other loves, idolatry and adultery. Um, so what happens then is Yahweh withdraws. That's the exile. He withdraws his protection. Babylon conquers Jerusalem, and they go into that terrible period of the exile. And there they're yearning and looking for God. God, why has this happened? What are you up to? And then the prophets are the watchmen. Remember, Ezekiel was called a watchman for Israel. And the prophets were those who sort of punished Israel by their prophecy saying, look, because of our adultery, because of our idolatry, God is going to withdraw and we're going to get beat by the Babylonians. So the prophets are there warning and, and they're bruised and black because of their words. And then we see that prophets like Daniel and Nehemiah lead the nation into repentance Daniel has a prayer of confession. Nehemiah has a prayer of confession. And both of them are instrumental in getting Israel to turn back to their king. And then the prophets, um, many of the prophets envision Israel's eventual return from exile back to their kingdom. They portray that as a return to the Garden of Eden. For example, Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 25 Ezekiel 34, 25 to the end of that chapter, it describes Israel's restoration to God as a new garden of Eden. And that's common in the prophets throughout. So what we see here is the bride rejects him, loses him, gets beaten by the watchman, the prophets, then realizes, wait, I know where he's going to be. And she goes to the garden, which is what the prophets had been saying. That's where we will return to God. Now, one of the important things to realize is that when we sense a withdrawal because of our sin, when we sense 
a withdrawal of God's presence, we have to, have to, have to prevent ourselves from falling into despair. Because when she gets up and goes to the door that he was just knocking at and is no longer there, she does not turn the handle and find condemnation. She does not turn the handle and find, ha, 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 you're going to hell. She does not turn the handle and find anything like that. She finds myrrh. It's the king leaving a trace of his grace to say, I'm still with you. You're just going to have to actually find me right now. Because this is going to grow you. This is for your maturity. The king's withdrawal, in other words, is never, ever final. It's always for our renewal. Just hearing these chicks, it reminds us how Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. But there he is, leaving the myrrh. Come, come to the garden, and there we will be reunited. So that's that's the story. Now what happens in chapter 6 and 7 is we see the reunion. We see the renewal of this marriage covenant between the king and the bride. So remember, she remembers, oh yes, he's in the garden. That's chapter 6, 2 through 3. My beloved has gone down to his garden. And then on the way to the garden, um, James Hamilton suggests that chapter 6, verse 4 through 10 is her recollection of what he has said to her. And I think that it's a sound interpretation because of the next few verses. So we're going to go with that, okay? So in verse 4, while she's going down to the garden, she's replaying things the king has said. So 6 verse 4. You are beautiful as Tizra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Tizra was a beautiful kingdom in the north of Israel, Jerusalem in the south. So from north to south, you are the most beautiful. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Now notice, this is going to be exactly what he says on the wedding night, said on the wedding night. Your hair is like a flock of goats, leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. So look, of all the royalty out there, you, you are the gem of them all. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. Who is this? Now, this is presumably all the other fancy, fancy royal women say in verse 2. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So she's gaining confidence. If she is indeed recollecting what the king has said about her, she's like, wait, 
I know where he is. He's in the garden. She's on her way. And he said these things to her. How many times does that happen when you recognize that you have grieved our Lord and that you're turning back? And you're like, I'm coming back, Lord. And and sometimes you can feel like, ah, I'm naked. I'm going to hide. But she's coming out in boldness and saying, no, but I remember his words. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And she's remembering that he lavishes praise on his people. He wants us. So she's coming to the garden with boldness. These words playing through her mind. Then in verse 11, we see she enters the garden. This is why I think James Hamilton thinks that she's recollecting these words, that he's not actually in front of her, because in verse 11, it wouldn't make sense if now she goes in the garden. So verse 11, it says, I went down to the nut orchard, or literally it should, it's the same word as garden. So um, you could, should just read that. I went down to the nut garden to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines have budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. What's happening? She says, I went down into the garden where I knew he was, but I wanted to see if everything was in bloom. Are the vines in bloom? Why? She's wondering, will he want me or is he mad at me? Is our relationship still fresh and budding? That's what she wonders. What will I find in the garden? Is it torn asunder? Has the plague ripped it apart? Or is he there? And guess what we see? He's there in verse 12. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Now, it's the, the Hebrew is infamously difficult in these two verses, 12 and 13. So what it seems is happening is... Um, that she shows up to the garden and there, horses with a chariot. And the king's like, I knew you'd come. <laughs> so he takes her on the chariot and whisks her away off to some tryst, <laughs> some rendezvous. And now the others whom she had beckoned earlier are saying, No, no, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. They're sad to see her go. You're so beautiful. But the king, you can see him just, yah, yah, looking back, his locks flowing in the hair. Remember, they're, they're red, they're raven, I mean, raven black locks, it said. Uh, he turns back and says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? In other words, what we have between us is a magical dance, this magical romance. And I love, I love, I love that C.S. Lewis describes our participation in the triune life of God as a dance. He says that we get to take up our place in this loving, dynamic relationship with God. And here, what what the king and the bride have together is described as this dance. So why would you call us away from this? This is too good. You have nothing on her. And that's what we need to remember when we're laying in the bed and the knock of the king seems so inconvenient. We need to remember the chariots that sweep us away. And one, one does wonder, I couldn't help but think about Elijah being um, swept up in the chariots of fire. So maybe this is sort of like a symbol of just being swept up into heaven. Like when you are with Christ, when we are one in communing with him, that is heaven on earth. You are swept up into his presence. Okay, now, that's... Um, That's the bride's renewal. We see that she goes into the garden. Is everything okay? And there he is. Oh, it's okay. And now you're getting the ride that you've not had yet. So we see a deepening. See, when when 
when we sense a withdrawal of God, it's never final. It's for our renewal. So that when we go and seek him, we see him in a deeper way than ever before. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not, we should not hear this immaturely and say, oh, all you got to do is go sin, say I'm sorry, and I'm closer to God. What a recipe. It doesn't quite work like that. See, what actually happens is you and I, if we are willing to look within, to stand before our king naked, as they do in their wedding chamber, um, if we're willing to stand from naked, you don't need to go commit a sin to feel that you're a sinner. You will feel it just by nature of being a human being. What we need is not to go sin, but is to go look at the sin that we already have. And that will cause us to return to the garden and it will deepen our intimacy with Christ. It's not that we need to heap on more sin. It's that we need to empty ourselves of the junk that is already wretched within us. And the more she empties herself, the more of him that comes in. So here we see there's this doubt. She's wondering, are we okay? Is the marriage okay? Yes, it's okay. Here is a picture of Israel returning to the king The marriage covenant is renewed. Do you know that Jeremiah said that that would happen? Jeremiah chapter 31, um, you might actually want to go look at it. This is such an important part of the Bible. It's to your right, Jeremiah. There's a couple books to your right. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. If not, I will read it to you, hopefully clearly. (laughs) Jeremiah 31 31. Jeremiah says this, while Israel is being sacked by Babylon, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What's he saying? So did you catch the depth of that? Um, Jeremiah is saying, I make a new covenant. Why? Because the first covenant was broken. I was their husband at Sinai in the Exodus. But they broke the marriage covenant. So I will pursue them. I will make a new covenant with them. There will be a renewed marriage between me and my people. That's what Jeremiah is saying. A new covenant is coming. So then in verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel through those days. This is the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So it's going to be part of their nature. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Remember, same phrasing as he is my beloved and I am his. It's this oneness, this this dual ownership. Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. To the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, I'm adding. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is what we see. The bride has come back to the marriage. It's a new covenant being formed. Where? Of all places, where it begins in the garden. Now, the king tonight offers you and me the same new covenant. 
Luke 22, verse 19. You guys know this very well, but I don't know if you ever caught the significance of the wording. Luke twenty-two nineteen, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the... New covenant in my blood. Every week that we gather, the king offers to us a renewal of our marriage covenant with him. Because this is not a wedding. Yeah, I got saved. I'm good. This is a marriage And we seek to deepen our intimacy, deepen our oneness, deepen our union, deepen our communion with Christ week after week, day after day. We want to go deeper into the garden. We want to be more and more with him. We want our nature to become like his nature, his laws being inside of us, not just things we imitate. Our nature being renewed. We are offered through Holy Communion, a cleansing. We get to go back into the garden. Wait, I know where he is. He went down to his garden. So I went down to the garden to see, are the vines still in blossom? It's like John 15. Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. I am the vine, you're the branches. You are the grape clusters. I'm the vine. If you are in oneness with me, you will be fruitful. And Christ is offering us a renewal of our marriage, a frequent renewal. Because how many times this week, since the last time you received communion, how many times have you found the king to inconvenience? I mean, if we're honest, ouch, yeah? Often it's the late night, I say, I'm not going to do my evening prayer, Lord. (laughs) It's just inconvenient right now. Yeah. So, are the vines still in bloom between you and God? No way to know except to go down to the garden. Because the devil will lie to you. You will feel condemnation. You'll feel guilt. You will feel, he will never receive me again. I have sinned my way out of the kingdom. He will not receive me. The only way to find out, go down to the garden. Remember Mary in John 20? Mary of Beth, no, Mary Magdalene. She goes down to the garden, literally. And after Jesus had died, oh no, will I ever see him again? She goes down to the garden and she sees him, but not as she remembered him, as something more radiant, more brilliant, more alive. The resurrected Christ is whom she met by going down to the garden. She was face to face with Christ. And by the way, She kind of literally went down into it because it says that she stooped to look into the tomb. She stooped to get into it. And it was when she came out from the tomb, out from the grave, that then she was face to face with what she thought was the gardener, only to find out it is the glorified, resurrected Christ. What our text wants us to do tonight, 6 verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden. Verse 11, I went down to the nut garden. There is this 
idea that the garden is not up here for the lofty people, the rich of spirit, to just climb up with their strength. Those who've got it together will get there. The garden is down. And it's for those who are poor in spirit. The rich in spirit will find it way too inconvenient. But the poor in spirit find it their sustenance. We must go down to the garden for that is where we find our king. Why is the garden down? Why must we go down to the garden? Because that's where Christ goes. Christ came from heaven to earth and then he died and from earth to Hades, the place of the dead, to hell, and then he comes back up from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if we are to follow Christ into his garden, we go with him all the way down. Because God cannot fill those who are too full of themselves. The way into the garden is out of ourselves. We must, we must deflate the hot air. We must deflate the ideas of God is so lucky to have me. Or, man, I'm doing great this week. I am awesome. Or, wow, I've made a lot. This happens. I've made a lot of progress in my prayer life. I'm pretty good. Or, wow, I've been so kind to people. What happened to my frustration? I must be becoming a saint. These are lies. Because what does the devil want more than anything than to keep us separated from Christ? So, yes, John, you're amazing. God is so pleased to have you in it. What would he do without you? And think of all the people you're blessing. You are so mighty. And then John starts to find, well, I can skip this and that. And because I'm doing really good. We We can only go into the garden by coming out of ourselves. By recognizing that, oh my goodness, I am a lazy sluggard who lays on my bed and neglects the knocking. Stop knocking! I want to sleep. Birds, stop chirping. I'm trying to listen. It's just too inconvenient. Um, but brothers and sisters, if we're willing to go down to the garden, by going down to the garden, we enter grace. Grace flows to the lowest place. That's why the garden is termed as being down. That's where grace collects. Grace is only for those who have fallen on their face, for those who recognize, I found my beloved inconvenient. I will go pursue him. I will be like a maniac in the middle of the night in the city. I will go down to the garden because this is the most important thing for me. Grace will always be in the lowest place. You will never find grace confident in yourself. You'll never find grace pleased with yourself. You'll never find grace being complacent. I'm doing all right with God. We got married, you know, so we're fine. (laughs) Grace is only for those who go down to the garden. So let's finish by seeing now that she's gone down to the garden, what happens to her? I told you that she's going to deepen her union with her king. So that's what we're going to see. When we enter Christ's garden, we enter his grace, which means three points of growth. First, in the garden, we receive a new name. When we go down to the garden, we receive a new name. This is chapter 6, verse 10. First time the bride is called... That's not verse 10. That's a typo. Sorry. Chapter 6, verse 13. First time the bride is called the Shulamite. Now, most commentators will refer to her as the Shulamite throughout. We call her the bride because 
Shulamite comes at this point, and that's significant. Not once, but twice. Verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. The second half of 13. Why should you look upon the Shulamite? Shulamite is a feminine form of Solomon. So, quite literally translated, it's Solomon S. The woman of Solomon. Um, when God created man and then woman, at least in Genesis 2, he, he takes the rib out of Adam's side, right? And the way the Hebrew reads is the man is Ish and the woman is Isha. Here we have Solomon. We have Shulamite. In the church, too, we have Christ. And then in Acts chapter 11, it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Christ and Christian. It means little Christ. We receive a new name in the garden. And what we see in this new name is that when the king married the bride... His status, Solomon, becomes her status, Shulamite. His identity, king, becomes her identity. And the book of Revelation promises we will rule and reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Our identity is his identity. We are of royal heritage. When we go to the garden, we receive a new name. Revelation says, I will give to them a new name. It's, I think it's chapter 2 or 3. I will give to them a new name. And that we are becoming closer to our king because we are now taking on his own name. That's a beautiful thing. We receive a new name, a new identity, a new status. Number two, in the garden, we bear much fruit. So the allusions of this section to John chapter 15 are clearly there. And we see she begins to bear much fruit. Uh, The king describes her as fruitful in chapter 7. And I remember that the, the, the imagery here is not meant to say this is what you look like to me. It's meant to say this is what you mean to me. So we're not to literally think, oh, her belly button is a really big bowl of wine. That's really interesting. Um, it's not meant that at all. So chapter 7, verse 1, she's fruitful. The, the king says, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your, rounded, your navel is rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat and circled with lilies. Now, none of that sounds incredibly attractive, but um, what it's describing is wheat and wine in abundance. These are the two staples in the Middle East of the time, especially wheat and wine. You drink wine, you eat wheat. And here there's an abundance of this in her. She, in him, is finding perfect sustenance. She's totally fruitful. Uh, We continue verse 3. You're two, you're kind of getting used to this by now. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle. Your neck like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of Betham Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Purple, of course, the color of royalty. Verse eight, six. For six, how beautiful and pleasant you are, a loved one with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. So here we see the tree imagery. And your breasts are like its clusters. 
So a palm tree um, produces dates. And so here he's describing her. You are a palm tree and you are loaded with dates. This is fruitfulness. In verse 8, I will, I say I will climb the palm tree. You can imagine what that means. And lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine. So now we're describing grapes on the vine. And the scent of your breath like apples. More fruit. And your mouth like the best wine. She's described as fruitful. And at the end here, the best wine. When Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding, the wedding in Cana, the host of the wedding said, you have saved the best for last. The best wine is what Jesus made. She is like the best wine. This is what he makes us into in our marriage with him. And then she responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. They're totally in intimacy here, right? They're totally one. They're cons- they're reconsummating their new covenant. And she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So she's fruitful. Um, in the garden, we bear much fruit. And then third, in the garden, we surrender finally and fully to the king's love. In the garden, we surrender finally and fully to the king's love. It wasn't, it's not always like this in our life with Christ. We're reserved. We're like, okay, yes, I I mean, thank you for saving me. At least I'm not going to hell. But as we continue to turn from our sins and seek him down in the garden, we will continually surrender ourselves finally and fully to his love perfectly and completely. You see this in 610 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to show you what she's saying. So 610 or 7, I'm sorry, 7. Sorry, don't turn. 710 through the end of the chapter. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Come, let's just explore a little bit. Each other, that is. In verse 13, the mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Here she invites him directly into her. Okay, but let's start with verse 10. I am my beloved's, and then rather than saying, and he is mine, she says something totally startling. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. There are only two other places in the Old Testament where this word desire is used. Genesis 3 verse 16 is the first. 316 is where the fall has happened, and God is pronouncing the curses as a result of living without God. You know 316. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. What's he saying? Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Well, the second place this word desire is used is in the very next chapter of the Bible, Genesis 4, verse 7. And it's about Cain. God said to Cain, Cain, if you do well, you will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. What's he saying? So the desire for the wife for her husband is like the desire of sin for Cain. This is about control. This word desire is about control. The wife will desire to control her husband. Yeah? But the husband will reply with an iron-fisted rule. Oh, no, you don't! I am the head, but I am the neck that turns the head. Some of you know what that is? Um, that's the word desire here. Sin wants to control Cain, but Cain, you must not let it. Here, she using, this is totally intentional because it's suddenly, after two references in Genesis, suddenly in the middle of the Bible, this word desire reappears for the final time. And she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She's reversed the curse. It's not me who's desiring to rule the husband. It's the husband who I'm letting rule me. This is the bride saying to the king, I surrender to you. In the garden, we learn to surrender completely and fully to Christ. And we, we stop trying to control God. We stop trying to tell God our plans and how he needs to bless them. We'd instead say, I am yours and your will be done. Didn't somebody pray that in the garden once? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Christ prayed. She's learning to surrender herself finally and fully to the king's love. Then you see the progression in verse 11 through 13. She says, come my beloved. And there's all these euphemisms for let's enjoy our um, marital intimacy. The kids are back, so I'll just marital intimacy. Um, let us enjoy this together. Now, it may not seem like much, might seem like more song of songs to you, but this is the first time the bride initiates directly this kind of intimacy with the king. It's been the king all along. This is the first time she asks him to come into her. This is maturation in their relationship because now she wants him as much as he has always wanted her. Christ stands at the door and knocks he has never stopped knocking. He has always wanted us. Have we always wanted him in the same way? When we go down to the garden, we find the grace that transforms us. See, when, when we sin and we sense this withdrawal, it's not final brothers and sisters. It's Christ saying, come for renewal. Because every time we find renewal through the broken body of Christ and the spilt blood of Christ, we enter into a new covenant, a new marriage agreement. We enter into not just like it was the first time we got saved, the first wedding night. We enter into this deeper, more mature, more we've been together so long, we're getting deeper into one another. We're literally becoming like each other. That's what the Christian life is about. This unending journey of penetrating the eternal, infinite, unlimited nature of God. I don't know why anyone thinks Christianity is boring. Not when you look at it like that. So, when we neglect the garden, we forget that we're sinners. 
That's why we neglect the garden. We don't go down the garden because we forget that we're sinners. You keep in mind that you're a sinner, you will always go down. You will always go down. You'll always find yourself in the garden. It's as simple as that. Christianity has been at its worst when we forget we're sinners. We become hypocritical. We become Pharisees. We become high-minded. We look down on people. We have lots of judgment to cast out. But our king did not cast judgment. He cast myrrh on the handles for us. We forget the garden when we forget we're sinners. And one of the most important things for us to do, and why when I've shared about prayer not too long ago, we talked about the importance of confessing our sins in prayer. We neglect the garden when we forget we're sinners. And again, this has to be understood. We don't have to go sin, go sin to figure this out. It is terribly present in us. Just think of any time you've neglected or um, found it inconvenient to respond to God's call. So, let that be your renewal to lead you down to his garden. Because as we strip ourselves of ourselves, we will find a perfect final and full surrender to his love and become more like his nature and more one with him. So our Lord and our God, empty us that we may go down and enter your garden of grace. Amen.